Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. I just want to ask one quick favor before we jump into this episode. You know, I've been organically growing this podcast for over five years, and I need your help to keep the momentum going. There's two things you can do. One is leaving a five-star rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Spotify is a lot easier. You'll see the rating button right at the top. Apple Podcasts, you have to scroll down the page a little bit, and you'll see a write a review button. Additionally, if you want to share this out with your audience on your social channels, text it to a friend or colleague or family member, whatever you have to do to pass this along to individuals that you find may need the help and may be looking to get started. So either of those things or both of you like would be appreciative so I can get this podcast out to more individuals and we can help more people get started and move in the right direction to a more happy and fulfilling life. So thanks again for your help and grateful to have you here on another episode. Let's get it started. On today's episode, I welcome back in Seth Godin. Now, Seth is known for a lot of things. He's a 20-plus time best-selling author. He started the Alt-MBA. He was the coordinator of the Carbon Albanac, which he says is his most important project he's ever done. And he's probably known really well for just shaping marketing in general and really being a pioneer in marketing and what we know is marketing today. And he has a new book out called The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams that we talk about in this episode, as well as go on a few different tangents. And one recommendation I would make, if you're not signed up for his daily blog, go to his website, ses.blog, that's S-E-T-H-S dot blog, and sign up and get that every single day to your email inbox. It's something I read as one of the first things every morning, highly inspirational, very tactical, and such a different view on the world and on life that you may enjoy it. So without further ado, please welcome back in Seth Godin. Seth, welcome back to the podcast. Good to have you. Always a pleasure. It's a highlight for me, Brian. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Uh, I'm excited about this new book. By the way, what is this? Is this number like 21? What, I, I'm losing count here. Well, I used to be a book packager and I did 120 books in the old days. So I started counting when I had a bestseller. So this is bestseller number 21 in a row. I'll take it. It's a it's a good life if you can get it. Well, so song of significance. I wanted you to start with one. What is the base level? What does the song of significance mean? But then maybe even I like to think just as someone that likes to write is how did the idea originate? Is this something that came up more in the last few years? Or have you been thinking about this for many, many years and it finally took form? We've been indoctrinated for a long time by the song of industrialism. Go to school, ask, will this be on the test? Do the minimum amount, get the decent enough grade, go to the placement office, get a job, do what your boss says. Work is supposed to be mind numbing. Uh, it makes us feel at some level relieved to be off the hook, but it's a grind. And yet that's not what people actually want. And I surveyed 10,000 people in 90 countries and asked them about the best job they ever had. And very few people said it was about making their numbers and racing to the bottom. That what significance is, is being respected, exceeding your own expectations, doing uh, work that you are proud of and making a change happen. That's significance. And uh, the book was inspired by some life events that happened to me at the end of 2022. All of us coming off a worldwide pandemic, so much trauma and dislocation uh, challenges in caste and social justice long overdue 
that we're looking at them. And when I put all those together, I realized that for over a decade, I'd been thinking about this. What is work for? Why do we even call it human resources? Humans aren't a resource. Humans are the point. And now that we have AI, mediocre work's over. There's nobody who wants to hire you to do what you're told because someone cheaper than you can do it. So the book is a rant. I wrote it very quickly, but I uh, couldn't be more proud of it. I cried when I read the audiobook because this time it's personal and it's about each of us and the work we seek to do. So I mean, the first question that comes to mind, and I think about this having a almost 11-year-old in fifth grade and kind of seeing him as he's going to grow and have to make these life choices. Why do we settle for the any job just to kind of get in the job market and then stay with that or stay in that career path that might not even be one that we enjoy? Well, first, uh, your son's lucky to have you. And uh, I hope that uh, you enjoy every moment of this journey together. Uh, industrialism made us all rich. Starting in 1910, pumping cheap oil out of the ground, burning it and making stuff the average person in 1920 in the United States owned two pairs of shoes and two pairs of pants. That the number of people on a percentage basis who live in severe poverty is lower than it has ever been in the history of mankind. That the deal that you would go to a place for 10 hours, work in the dark and do what you were told was taken by people because the prizes were so extraordinary. And now I can type a few things on my keyboard and uh, a factory in China will ship an air fryer to me for $89. That's impossible, right? And we got hooked on that whole cycle. And if it didn't have side effects, I wouldn't be arguing about it. But first of all, that cycle is starting to run out of steam because you can't keep making something 80% cheaper. And number two, um, computers are making it so that people have much less of a role in that. But number three, the biggest one, is that as companies like Amazon and Meta and others race as hard as they can to cut corners to make their stock price go up, they're losing sense of what humanity can be capable of. Mm. And so Amazon has this huge turnover problem. It They lost 25% of their profit in 2021 just from turnover. And <clears throat> there are some cities where they don't think they're going to be able to find anybody who wants to work for them, who hasn't worked for them before, because it's just such a, a grind to be in that warehouse with that stopwatch, someone measuring your bathroom breaks. Yeah. Why are we signing up for that? Why don't we use this moment when we have so many resources to build something we're proud of instead? I want to chat about some things we could do better, but just kind of a level set. What, what organizations do you think are with the song of significance and like doing good work, what organizations would you kind of call out and say, hey, they're actually doing a really good job? Well, I can pick big ones and I can pick small ones. Uh, my friend Sean Eskinozzi runs a chocolate company in uh, Missouri. And he's not trying to out Nestle Nestle or out uh, Hershey Hershey, but he visits every farmer who grows his beans. He pays them five times the usual wage. He has open book management. He runs clinics for kids in high school and brings them to Tanzania. He sells directly to the stores that sell. I mean, just go down yeah. the list. Sean and his daughter are building a company that they are proud of, and the people who work there find joy in it. Does it make as much money as Nestle? No, 
but that's fine because it makes enough. At the other end of the extreme is, you know, let's compare Microsoft to a company like Google. Microsoft has said, we're going to fight the trap of measuring the productivity of our programmers. We are not going to say, how many lines of code did you commit? They're saying, let's build a place where people solve problems, not where they are obedient and on the clock. And as a result, the last year has been pretty great for Microsoft. Steve Ballmer almost wrecked that place, being a bully and telling everyone what to do. And Satya Nadella has figured out how to create the conditions for people to get to where they want to go. Well, you bring up a great point too, because I think about this a lot around like local community. We all want to, you know, it's one thing, especially from entrepreneurship, it's like, how do you build a big business? And then how do you keep growing? I see this from a sales world. It's like, what's the new numbers? Like keep hitting and growth. And at some point, I think your, your friend with the chocolate company is like, let's have a great company that we take care of our, our staff, that we make an impact in the community. Certainly if it gets a little bigger, sure, but that's more an organic growth I see and just naturally happens. You know, that network effect that gets talked about, right? It's it's just natural. It's not like we're going to force it down your throat. And I think, do you see that as like the big problem is like, we always have to get to the, the shareholders. How do we get more money? How do we, that seems what it is, I guess, is the driver for folks. Yeah, there are a few things going on here. First of all, nothing in my book argues that you should choose to make less money. That in fact, in the world we live in, you will make more money by doing this. That in many years, my little company, which now has zero people in it, but at one point had 10, made more money than some of the biggest, most famous companies in the world, like Twitter, because they were losing money, racing to get big. And the stock market is not your customer, and they are not the point. Milton Friedman just made up this nonsense about maximizing short-term shareholder value. That's not the purpose of a company. The purpose of a company is to serve its constituents in the long run. And those constituents include the community it operates in and the people who work there in addition to their customers and their investors. That's four different groups of people, not one. And so here's this opportunity we have to be more human. And it turns out that humanity is exactly where people want to work and who people want to buy from. So it seems to line up that this is an opportunity. Well, we talk about the, so let's talk about the, the humans that are actually or most of them that are doing the work that we're showing up, we're talking about obviously taking those roles. So if someone's getting in, let's even take it from like a management and leadership position. Someone's been working for a company a little while. Now they're getting promoted. They're, they're at, they want to make a difference in the organization. Are there things they should be considering different than the, the status quo, the things that have been talked about for years and years? So part of the challenge of being promoted is you have to look at, what system are you in? If you are swimming in the industrial ocean, you can't just announce you want to play by human rules and expect to win because they're different cultures. Culture is what we do around here, how things work, what we measure, what's important. If you work in a place where someone is measuring you with a stopwatch, treating you in an inhuman way, disrespecting you and pushing you harder, you should either change the culture or leave. But you don't have the right to just stay there and insist it be the way you want it to be and then be upset when it's not. And as talented people make choices, when talented people, skilled people look at the boss and say, I just saw you fire somebody in front of everyone, humiliating them. I'm quitting too. 
You don't need very many people to do that for the place to change. Well, it comes back to people don't leave companies, they leave managers, right? Isn't that the, mm-hmm. the old saying? And I've seen this in my career too. It's like being a part of a, a, a one small startup. I think I was employee 24 and it was unbelievable. I had the, the, the uh, co-founder was just an unbelievable human being, one of my mentors today still. And then as he kind of moved out, new leadership, leadership management, whatever we want, if we want to talk, you know, maybe it wasn't as much leadership, but that all of a sudden changed the paradigm of everything. And there was a mass exodus a year, year and a half later because of that. So it kind of you know proves that point, if you will. Yeah, exactly. You know, managers use power and authority to get people to do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. And leaders look for volunteers who want to explore the liminal space between where we are and where we're going. And sometimes managers are leaders, but not always. And sometimes leaders are managers, but not always. When I worked at a company just like the one you worked at, I was the 30th employee. Uh, my boss had a boss. That was it. I led, but I had no employees. And I ended up with 40 people working for me, even though none of them reported to me. Because I decided, since I was 23 years old and no one had told me otherwise, that I could just lead. And you know, thanks to David, he let me. But no one gave me a ticket. No one said, you are now authorized to lead. And I wasn't a manager. So I had plenty of free time. Well, and I've also looked at this from the other side is like, you know, people do great in a, let's take sales as an example. That's a something role I've been in. And, you know, easy to talk about is you do exceptionally well. You're one of the top performers. And it's like, hey, let's promote you to management. <laughs> but you're not a man. It's like, you don't have the skill set to lead other human beings. Like I see that as probably the one of the largest problems that organizations, as they try to grow, they have to fill seats. They just say, oh, they were great here. They're probably going to be great there. That's not necessarily true. No, it's not. And it's also not true that you have to have had cancer to be a successful oncologist, that the empathy required to manage and lead is not really related to the skills required to do the job. And we should be really clear about finding people who can be intentional about the change they're making and the way they're engaging with their people. We shouldn't give them a job simply because they were good at the last job. You talked about kind of this book as a rant. What do you feel if you had to kind of pick the whole, of the whole book, what is the rant that you're maybe the most proud of or, or the one that you maybe spent the most time thinking about? Well, there's a lot of stories about bees in the book. Um, the bees changed my life. And I don't think I can do it justice in a podcast interview, but what I will say to people is this, we are not bees. But when you learn how the hive works, when you understand how 20,000 bees can be organized without an organizer, led without a leader, connected without a connector, you start to understand what culture is, what things are like around here, where we can find possibility. And as we each get older every day, when I think about my friend Ben Zander, who just had his 84th birthday, and my friend Tom Peters, who's probably in his 80s as well, these are people who spoke up early and often years ago. And they said, hey, wait a minute, who's talking for the humans here? Because we got plenty of people talking for the machines, plenty of people talking about the system. But who's speaking up for the humans? And the reason I'm calling it a rant is not because I need to read it and not because I want to sell books. 
I'm not in the book selling business. It's because I want people to talk to each other about this, about how they could create a different sort of environment. Is it more on the, the kind of that idea of meritocracy, kind of the best idea wins versus sometimes a decision gets made, they don't even take an account a hundred other people that are involved in it, and then you have to go with it, right? Yeah, so meritocracy is this great expression that essentially doesn't really happen in the real world because it's used by the ruling class to describe the people who look like them. And it's used after the fact to applaud the ideas that worked, even though there might've been a better idea that would have worked better. So I'll give you a personal example. It doesn't have to do with uh, social standing. It has to do with hierarchy. So I was one of five vice presidents at Yahoo, and I was there in 1999. Yahoo was everything. It was the internet. Mm -hmm. And many things I brought to the table, some things I got patented, some things I suggested, many things didn't happen. But one of the things I came up with was this. The number one clicked on thing, if you can visualize the Yahoo homepage, which had 135 links on it, the number one clicked on thing on the Yahoo homepage was the Yahoo logo. And when you clicked on the Yahoo logo, absolutely nothing happened. Because everywhere else on the Yahoo page, if you clicked on that logo, you went to the homepage. But on the homepage, it didn't do anything. So I went to the co-founder of Yahoo and I said, I would like that link, please. Because we're wasting it anyway. And what will happen is the page will turn over and it'll say, ooh, hey. And that'll be the back page of Yahoo. And on the back page of Yahoo, there'll be astrology and cartoons and crossword puzzles and all that stuff that newspapers make so much money from. So just give me that page. No one here has to do anything and it'll pay off in spades. And David kept the Yahoo homepage on a server under his desk. And the only way for the Yahoo homepage to be changed was to get the key from David. And David said, no. And the reason he said no is because the stock price was going up $2 every single day. And there were people I worked with who had 100,000 shares of stock. So nobody wanted to change their underwear, never mind the homepage. And the question is, was Yahoo a meritocracy? And the answer is, of course not. Because first of all, the only people that even got to say their ideas were 10 of us sitting around the table who happened to be privileged, who happened to you know, have lucked into being in that room. And number two, the co-founder has the key to the system and they don't want to test anything. Well, multiply that by wherever you work and whatever you do, right? Why doesn't Apple change the way podcasts are sorted and promoted and highlighted? Yeah. Because someone came up, you know, uh, whatever his name is, came up with it uh, 15 years ago and no one wants to change it because they're afraid. That's not a meritocracy either. So. What we know is it's easier than ever to test things. We know that there's so much more churn in the world that three years ago, people said Facebook was unbeatable and would never, ever be displaced. And now people are watching Meta shaving, uh, shedding people like crazy. And all of a sudden the world is different. So yes, in the marketplace, there is a meritocracy of what idea is gonna work next. But in organizations, there's still a lot of power dynamics. Well, then how, and this actually, I didn't, I didn't think we'd go down this, this road, but I'm glad we got here is, um, you know, something I talk about with just get started is like 
this is an individual human being of saying, hey, I'm going to change. Fitness is a great example, right? I'm going to go to the circle in the gym, get healthy. But then that commit to the change is a whole nother. That's changing your habits and lifestyle and stuff. So whether you take it from an individual course or an organization, how do you actually get folks to commit to the change then? Right. What, what's, yes. the, what's, the, what's, what's the first couple steps, would you say? Well, thank you for bringing this up. I've been, I was thinking about you earlier today when I was working on my juggling. Um, I've been teaching juggling for years. And most nerdy people would like to learn how to juggle. And they will announce to you that they are committed to juggling. And then they will grab some balls and they will try to juggle for five minutes. And then they will leave as much of a non-juggler as they got there. And what I'm trying to do right now in my juggling practice is hard. And I've been working on it for five months. And yesterday I started to make progress after four and a half months of not making progress. And the reason that juggling is hard is because the culture pushes us to focus on catching. Catching is heroic. Catching is not failing. Catching is this lunge. Look how wonderful I am. But that's not how you learn how to juggle. You learn how to juggle by learning to throw. And if you commit to throwing day after day after day, the catching will take care of itself. And so the mantra of your podcast, which you've shown up and done hundreds of episodes, hundreds of times, that's really hard work, is you just keep getting better at throwing. The catching will take care of itself. And so the commitment in the industrial age is hard because if you don't have all the machines and all the funding and everything else, you don't get to throw. And so there's just all this pressure on you to just catch today's emergency. And you add up enough emergencies and you have a life and that's not a good life. So what I'm encouraging people to do in the book, The Practice, and just every day when I'm talking to people is, let's just get better at throwing because a drop ball isn't that bad. It's cheaper than ever. Ask GPT-4 a stupid question. No one will see. And if you ask GPT for 50 questions, you'll get better at asking it a question. Learn to throw. That's a great point. Well, I'm thinking about, I want to go back to something you mentioned and kind of with what you just said, but kind of earlier about education, industrial system, and and kind of going back to, I guess, thinking about my son in, in fifth grade and going into middle school and stuff. Because I think you talk about this in the book, if you remind me, but is around how is the education system today maybe I don't want to say doing it wrong, but how could they improve? How could let's take a positive and how could they do it better to help the future leaders in the next five, 10, 20 years? So I wrote a, a book about this. It's free. It's at stopstealingdreams.com. It's been downloaded more than 4 million times. So I will try to do it justice in 45 seconds, but Stop Stealing Dreams argues that if we want school to get better, we have to ask a very simple question that never gets asked. Not when you go to a PTA conference, not when you go to a school board meeting. It's a simple question, which is what is school for? And I would challenge that teacher or that principal or that administrator or that taxpayer, please tell me what school is for. And if they're gonna be honest, what they would say is school is to train my child to have a high status job where they will go to a factory and do what they're told because that's who invented school school is modeled after the prussian paramilitary system of the 1800s school was paid for by industrialists and you know if you're defective they hold you back and they reprocess you that sounds a lot like factory work to me 
And I have an answer for what is school for, but it's not that. I think what school is for is to teach people to solve interesting problems. And memorizing is not an interesting problem. And looking something up on Wikipedia is not an interesting problem. And getting an essay written by GPT is not an interesting problem. Solve interesting problems and lead those two things. And so what we need to do is just keep asking those that question. If you want school to be for something other than two, those two things, please speak up. But if it is for those two things, let's build a system that gets us those two things. Mm. Well, it goes back to two, because you could think of like the, the school system as like a large organization, like getting them to change the paradigm. It seems, I don't know, it seems daunting to me. I look at it as like, should I run for superintendent? Like I've thought about this, you know, because I'm like, how do you, how do you enact change with a large, you know, school system that has hundreds of schools in it? We are seeing in our political system right now that when 10 organized people show up at a school, they can get books banned, they can get the curriculum changed, they can do all sorts of negative things. If a bunch of parents showed up and just said, we know what school is for, the school would change faster than most people can realize. Mm. I like that. That's, you're you're inciting an idea in my head, baby, for, uh, for the future. Uh, so a couple more questions I want to ask. I'm going to take a long, I'm going to, I'm going to go on the other side of the highway. We're going another direction. If you don't mind, just cause I'm going to, um, if I don't sure. ask these, I'm going to be upset at myself. <laughs> I, it's just cause I have you here and, and obviously talking about getting started. So I, as you mentioned, hundreds of books before, but you know, the best sellers 21 or so going back to book one, mm -hmm. what, what have you learned that you would do different? If you could go back to book one, would you do anything different? Or is it part, is that process, was that important? Or would you, it, learning what you know now, what would you change if you went back to that first book? So I'm not a great example for most people who are listening to this because I'm a little bit of a unique situation and an odd personality. So I have coached and helped for free dozens of people, many of whom have had massive bestsellers, write their first and only book. And the method is very simple. And because it's so simple, it scares people because it puts you on the hook. And here's how it works. Find somebody who you trust, who trusts you, who doesn't know the thing you need them to know, the thing you want to write a book about. I'm not talking about a novel here. I'm talking about nonfiction. You want to write a book about career advice. You want to write a book about uh, SEO. I don't care. Find somebody like that and ask them to go on a walk with you. Then go online and buy a $19 digital tape recorder. Learn how to use it. Put a little clip on your collar and record yourself. And then go for an hour and teach this person what they need to know. If you can't teach somebody what they need to know in an hour, you shouldn't be pretending you can write a book. Mm -hmm. But my guess is you can. My guess is that you are generous enough and smart enough and insightful enough that in an hour, you can outline your point of view about something. Then take that file and upload it to rev.com, pay them 20 bucks, and they will type it up for you. You'll get it back tomorrow. Now you have the first draft of your book. You should make it better. But editing the last part of a book is way easier than looking at a blank page and saying, I don't know what to do. This method always works. Will you end up writing a book like Robert Caro? No, 
you might not even write a book like James Clear, but you will write a book and it will be one you can be proud of because it is you talking to somebody about what they need to know. That's great advice. Well, it goes back to your last book, right? Uh, the practice. It's like, you got to just put it out in the world. Like the first book, no, I think you mentioned like no one read your first hundred blog articles, right? What do you, what do you want? Like 8,000 now, 10,000? I don't know how many you've written now, but uh, I do enjoy getting yeah, it every, no, a, every morning, by the way. Reader, I had a hundred daily readers in yeah. the first year. So if I said a hundred isn't enough, I would not have a blog. I didn't write a blog because I needed to get a million readers. I wrote a blog because writing it felt like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we live in this culture filled with false proxies where we're measuring the wrong stuff. Your Facebook friends aren't your friends. The people who follow you on social media aren't actually following you and they don't actually like you. Those numbers are all invented to make you do it again. That's not your job. Your job is to do your job. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, I, I'm, I'm going to make you give you a big head here, but like I've learned a lot of this for you over the years of like, that's how I, with my blogging or the children's books or whatever it is, even a podcast, it's like, I'm looking, you know, I, I, as I tell people, I'm going to be doing the Just Get Started stuff for the next 50 years. Like this is stuff that I don't, it doesn't matter what the following count or whatever are because you have that, that North star. And I'm sure yeah. similar maybe to you with the things that you're doing. It's like, you can't get caught up in the day-to-day, -day, this short-term win. I, I talk a lot about delayed gratification. It's like, what does it look like down the road for me as I continue to put this stuff out? And that's where I, I know a lot of folks get stuck because they are looking at tomorrow, am I going to get an extra 10 followers or whatever, you know? Yeah. No, I used to reach out to people who had had very quick overnight success and volunteered to help them think about how they could develop a practice. And I stopped because most of them were so swayed by their instant overnight success that they expected it was going to happen again. And if it wasn't going to happen again, they had wanted nothing to do with it. And so you end up with one hit wonders. You end up with people who don't develop a practice that the magic of Bob Dylan isn't that Bob Dylan is a genius. The magic is he made more than 50 records and you know, the, the monkeys didn't make more than 50 records. So that's a giant gap there. You show up and you show up and you show up. So what's going to be for this book when, when you think back of like, hey, this book was quote unquote successful. What, is that, what does that mean to you with this book? It's already been successful. Uh, a friend of mine lost someone in his family and I mentioned her in the acknowledgments and talking to him and his family about the book that was enough reason to write it right there. Yeah. So that, that's uh, maybe a good spot to end on. I'm excited for folks to put this in their hands. And uh, any final words, encouragements, thoughts, insights that you'd share to folks listening in? You know, your podcast is all about intention. No one is accidentally doing the work you're talking about. So if we're going to intentionally create a human place to do human work, we should talk about it. And that's why I did the Carbon Almanac, so we can talk about it. And books are special because you can hand somebody a book. And they're special because you can say, let's talk about this. So the reason I'm on your podcast and others is to say to people, not I need you to go buy it or even read it. I just need you to talk about it, please. Seth Godin, always a pleasure. I enjoy reading your blog every morning. Keep doing it and uh, keep putting out great work. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Brian. Keep making a ruckus, man. Hey, everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianondraco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions, where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in and have a phenomenal day.